0: Everybody else who's not a preschooler, you get to grab a Bible and turn to Luke 12 in case there wasn't clarity there as to who you're supposed to be. Well, Cole, as you guys are turning, um, I do want to thank and, and bless you, Mothers. Um, you're a sweet and precious gift to us and our church, and I say amen to Jones' prayer there um, before the Father. Also, I want to just let you know, uh, I think we have a lot of of, of college students who are going to be leaving us, but uh, some, uh, I know about when it's going to be their last Sunday, sometimes I don't, but I believe this Sunday is, Zipporah's last Sunday with us, Um, so if you get a chance, Zipporah Wave, if you haven't had a chance to meet Zipporah, you have, um, well, you've missed out, I'm sorry, it's too late now, Um, you better catch her right as she's leaving today, but um, Sapora has been a sweet gift to our church the last couple of years. She's been faithfully a part of our church. Uh, we are so grateful for college students who don't co- come to the campus and come to West Georgia and separate and keep themselves separated from the church world and church life, but instead ingrain themselves. And Sapora has done that. She's been such a sweet uh, blessing to our church, and we're willing, we've been a blessing to her. So we love her. as She goes off to Georgia State to pursue her, her master's degree, I believe, uh, here this summer and the uh, next couple of years. So uh, blessings to you as you head out. Luke chapter 12 is where we are going to be this morning. We're going to be picking up in verse 13, and we will read through verse 34. <clears throat> um, one of the things, I've got a couple weeks here. My, many of you know that my wife is due to have a baby um, next Sunday. Um, and I, I'm supposed to be starting a psalm series, and I'm going to use that for the rest of, work through that for the rest of the summer, but didn't want to dive into that until we kind of knew when I was going to be out of the pulpit. And I don't really know when that's going to happen this month. So I'm assuming by the end of May, we will have our, our baby. And so uh, we'll be putting off the Psalm series until uh, June. At least the baby <laughs> better be here by May. I mean, by June, right? Um, all, all pregnant women, let me say amen. Um, and uh, two weeks after your due date is no fun. Um, so what we're going to do, as I was surveying, going, okay, I think I have about two weeks here. What do I want to try to get with this two weeks? And it was looking at what are the things I haven't talked about, and one of the things that I have never given any attention at all in our time and our life as a church is money. Now I've given insinuations to it in various places, um, and, and I, to be honest with you, I have great fear in talking about money. Um, I don't want to corroborate the impression that some of you have, which is that the church often is or has gotten the, the impression given the impression to people that the church is nothing but about money that what we want is your money, and um, this this morning, what I wanted to do is speak and preach about money in a season in the life of our church in which I'm not standing up in front of you and saying, hey, we need money for a building, or hey, we need money for this ministry initiative. Those days may come. I wanted to um, kind of unadulterated, kind of just preaching on money without having to point you to something that seems... Self-serving on our part, although that's not self-serving to ask for money for the kingdom of God. But I didn't want to be there to be any confusion there. And so we're going to talk about money this week, um, and perhaps next week if I am still in the pulpit next week, uh, and if my wife's having a baby, somebody else will be up here uh, talking about something else. But so that's where we're going. And as a matter and a point of your discipleship, I think it's of significant importance for us to talk about this issue. We talked about parenting and marriage, we talked about your work life uh, in regards to the, as we went to the second half of the Colossians, but we haven't really address this topic of money, and so we're going to hit on that this morning and next week. Nothing says Mother's Day like money, right? (laughs) Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34, read along in God's word with me. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor uh, about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither neither sow nor reap, They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek first his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the reading of God's holy and errant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God may it stand forever. Well, to introduce this story this morning, I just want to let you give you the context of what goes on here and explain Uh, what what is happening within this text. Excuse me. At the beginning of chapter um, 12, Jesus is um, speaking, and it says actually in chapter 12, verse 1, which we didn't read, that Jesus is speaking to thousands of people, to a crowd of folks. But what we see primarily going on here is that in the midst of this crowd, Jesus is actually going to pull aside his disciples and speak to them in a more private manner. But in the midst of speaking to this crowd, he has a man who comes up to him and brings a complaint that he has. He approaches Jesus about what appears to be an inheritance dispute. This man appears appears that his older brother is not giving him the share of the inheritance that he believes that he is due or maybe lawfully due as a member of the family. And so he's coming to Jesus and asking that Jesus would arbitrate and judge between he and his brother. But Jesus won't arbitrate the dispute at all. He won't play Judge Judy or Judge Joe Brown, whoever is your favorite TV judge. Instead, instead of playing judge and playing arbiter and going along with this, instead, he gives the man not what he wants, but instead gives him a warning. Instead of arbitrating the case, Jesus warns the man about what? About the disease of money. That is is an easy disease to catch. That is not the Zika virus. That is chickenpox back in the 80s. When I was a kid, you could get chicken pox so easily and so quickly. You young kids have no idea about chicken pox, do you? You don't get it anymore. But those of us of an older generation, we know about chicken pox. that if you even sat even close to somebody with chicken pox, you were going to get that disease. And there is a disease that money gives us it is running rampant in this world and always has, but it maybe in particular, in our particular culture, in our particular society, we have a disease known as money, and that's where we're going to start this morning. The first thing I want to look at is indeed the disease of money that Jesus points out here. He clearly articulates that there is something that when we have wealth and we want money, the love of money causes some issues, causes a sickness in our heart's in our souls. We actually see that the Bible refers to this and this love of money as being a significant problem. First Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10 says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then it says this in verse 10, a very famous uh, verse, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith, and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Here is what money can do to you, according to Luke chapter 12. Three things we see going on here. The first is this, is that money can turn you into a fool. It can make you a fool. Jesus tells the story in answering this man and giving this warning. He tells one of his many parables. The parable he tells here is about a farmer who is very wealthy, and his land produces even above and beyond its normal harvest and abundance. And he already has full barns, great barns full of grain and wheat and fruit and whatever he needs. But then he has this astounding yield from his harvest one year. And he has no room to store it. But what is his thoughts immediately are not about how we can bless others and give these extra blessings away. But instead, all he thinks about is how he can get more, get better, and get much bigger barns. He looks out over all he has done, and he says what? It is done. You know, we, we almost see, we see, I think, almost nothing that, that appears to be like our retirement system that we have here in America. And this, but except this passage shows a man who appears to have the attitude of retirement that we so often have. He said what? It's time for me to relax, to eat, drink, and be merry for the rest of my life. And in verse 20, how does God refer to this man? He says... That man is a fool. Now the word fool is a serious word in the Bible. In fact, we actually see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus actually says that if you call someone a fool, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Which is, that's such a word that you're not to describe other people with, that he would bring judgment down upon you. But God is allowed to declare that someone is a fool. He has the the, the vantage point to see people's hearts... The word fool in the Bible certainly has a rational aspect to it. A fool can be someone who does dumb and stupid things. But more than that, a fool in in the Bible is somebody who's not just thinking. They're not thinking out the the reality of God in their life. There's a spiritual aspect to being a fool in the Bible. Foolishness is not simply the absence of the mental equipment you need in order to make wise decisions. Instead, it is the presence of an outlook that hates God's definitions of reality. Did you hear that? A fool is one who may have the mental capacity to think rightly and do right things. They have the knowledge as to how to spend their money and how to save, and yet, because they hate God and hate God's principles, they do things that are foolish and unwise. And so this is what money can do to us. Money can blind you. The disease of money, the love of money can blind you to the fact that you have become a fool. Well, that brings us to the second thing that money, the disease of money, does to us. And that's simply this it makes you blind. It makes you blind. Verse 15, Jesus says this take care and be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. Now, let me ask you this. If the sheriff's department came to you and said you have a pedophile that's moved into your community and into your neighborhood, would you be kind of relaxed about it? Especially if you had small children? Would you be like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. That's, that's not that big of a deal. No, we would be rather vigilant and making sure that our children are protected from such a person. We would not be, we would always be on the watch and on guard. In fact, you may want to move because you find that all day, every day, you are watchful out for this person. This is the type of attitude that Jesus is actually saying that we have to have toward greed and covetousness and towards love of money. Now, why would Jesus need to say that we have to look out for it? And it's, the reason is this. Because the nature of greed, by its nature and what makes it so powerful, is that it's hidden. We don't know that we're greedy. It has this ability, think of Kaiser Sose from the movie Unusual Suspects, and which he says the greatest, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. Well, the power of greed and the love of money is convincing us that we don't have a problem in that area. You see, as a pastor, I have people come in and confess to things to me all the time. They have anger issues. They have lust problems. But you know what? No one has ever walked into my office and confessed that I'm a greedy, covetous, covetous person. That I love money. No one has ever done that. In fact, I don't think anybody, any of my accountability groups has ever confessed this. No one has ever said, this is the issue that I have in my life. The very nature of the disease of money is that it keeps itself hidden. That's the power of it. None of us think that this is the greatest issue in our life, the greatest struggle that we have, and yet the Bible seems to think that this may be the most central sin in your life. Did you know the Bible addresses money 20 times more than it addresses sex? It is the most often talked about sin and topic in all of Scripture. In all of Scripture. Because where your money goes... And you can see from there, you can connect it to the idolatries in your life. The irony of, of this, even though the Bible takes it so seriously and talks about it so much, the irony is, of it is that none of us think that we have a problem in this area. None of us could, could, would communicate that we are greedy or lovers of money. No one shows up and says, oh, man, I've got this issue. It's, so, it's hidden, right? It's not like, I mean, it, 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 it is hidden. So so many of the other sins... It's rather obvious when you're committing those sins, right? If you're committing adultery and you look over and the person in the bed you're committing adultery with, you go, wait a second, you're not my wife. That's not what happens, right? You know when you're committing adultery. I saw yesterday there was a man who was uh, caught with stealing from a, um, a, a pet store and he stole a snake by sticking it down his pants. Listen, you know when you're stealing a snake when it's down your pants, but with greed, you don't know. You don't know. It, is, it has the power to blind us to it. And this is often, so often, this is how we think. That even in a world in which we are so wealthy, it doesn't matter With you have hit that, that new step of, of, of economic growth and financial prowess. There's always somebody else who has more, right? You get ushered into a whole new set of people, and now there's more people who have wealth. You know, a number of years ago, uh, there was a Wall Street Journal article that was um, quoting from a Boston College University study that said this that one third of Americans who make six figures or above, that make $100,000 a year or above, agreed with this statement that I can't buy everything I need. Did you hear that? I can buy everything I need. One third of Americans who make six figures can agree with the statement, "I can buy everything I need." Did you, what, what, is the, what is the implication of that? That means two thirds of Americans who make six figures don't believe that they can buy what they need with six-figure incomes. We are a people who have gotten blinded. It is so difficult to recognize greed in us, but because we think we think we only see it in other people. In the Gospels, we love it when Jesus goes after those rich people. Like in this tax. Yeah, Jesus, get those rich people. Oh, oops, that might be me. You know, the founder of Habitat for Humanity was meeting with a group of pastors in which he pointed this out in a, in a very appropriate way and wise and shrewd way in, the pa- in pastors' lives. And when she asked this question, he said, Do you think it is possible for a person to build a house that is so grand and opulent that it would be immoral? What do you think? Every pastor, every hand in the room, their hand went up and said, yes, you can build a house and have so many possessions and have such an opulent life that it would be considered immoral. And then the man asked this, and how many of you live in a house like that? No one raised their hand. We struggle to see the presence of greed in our own hearts. Understand this, that this, this whole love of money thing That this whole greed and covetous thing is not simply an issue for the rich, and we are very rich, but it's not simply an issue. In case you think that you're not rich, we'll turn it on you as well. You see, who is Jesus speaking to here? He is first. He's in the in the context of a crowd, but then he turns and he talks to his disciples, and that's important because was Jesus' disciples wealthy men? No, they were fishermen. For the most part, these were blue-collar workers. Some of them had given up their livelihoods in order to follow Jesus. These were not wealthy people. They were, for the most part, rather poor people. These are people who have no money, and yet Jesus feels that it's very important for him to take the time to pull his disciples aside and say, I know that you don't have any money, but be careful of the disease of money. The most important teaching we can get from this is whether it's from the absence of money or from the presence of money, we can fall prey to the sin of greed to the sin of covetousness, to the love of money. Money is the ability to blind you and control you and corrupt you in many ways. And so the conclusion that we must come to from this first point is this, that each one of us, which we must assume, we must assume that we have this disease, that you are born with this particular disease, you need a healthy self-suspicion that you would have this particular disease going on in your life. And so we see this see that money makes you a fool. The love of money also blinds you, but then also there's the consequence, and it's this. The third thing is that money, it leads to death. The love of money leads to death. Money is a liar. In fact, the more you have of it, the less satisfied you are with it, and it will kill you in your pursuit of it. Now listen, if you've lived for very long and experienced many places in, in relationships, you, you know this, if you'd open your eyes to it right money leads to death in many different ways and many different forms in our life money leads to death relationally you know one of the one of the things that's happening in our in our culture in our country in the last 10 years or so in particular as the baby boomers are aging is as as they're dying off and what happens when people die they the attorney opens up the wills and what's happening to families when those wills are read there's relational strife among siblings who have gone along perhaps their whole life but now, suddenly, they're yelling and screaming and saying all kinds of nasty things to one another. It can destroy your relationships left and right. It can destroy because of the love of money. Money can lead, that's what's going on in this text, isn't it? It's an inheritance issue. And this is the same thing we have going on today. Money can lead to spiritual and ministry death, money can make you complacent. You know, we are we're told and called as Christians to have a wartime mentality, to always be on the lookout. But money can make you spiritually soft. I don't need Jesus because I have all the things that I need here. You know, John Wesley tells a story. John Wesley was the great Methodist preacher and, and evangelist. tells a story of going to, to visit a man, another believer, who was one of a, a great supporter of his. And he visited this man's vast estate. And they got on horses, and for the entire day, they ran around this man's vast estate. And they were only able to see a fraction of it because the estate was so large. And the man was very clearly proud of the land that he had and his wonderful estate and how well it was cared for and how fruitful it was. And he said to John Wesley, he's like, what do you think? And Wesley's response was this, I think you're going to have a very hard time giving this all up when Jesus comes back. <laughs> you see, he was already experiencing heaven. See, if you experience heaven if you believe you're experiencing heaven on earth you're not going to look forward to jesus coming and to return anytime soon this is the case that happens to ministers left and right now i heard of one pastor telling the story of five different friends within this denomination within the pca of pastor friends who had wealthy parents and they were serving faithfully and ministering very well as pastors but then their parents died and they received the inheritance and over the course of the next couple years every single one of them would leave the ministry They no longer needed to strive, to pursue. They had all the things that they needed. So so often you can have young guys who come in and say, man, I I want to, this is such a warning for you younger guys who are going out into the business world. I've heard so many guys say this. What God is calling me to do is to go make a lot of money so I can give it to missionaries. Now that's great. That is a great idea to have. You better be instilling that discipline right now. I mean, you better be, if you've got $10, you're saying, "I'm, I'm dirt poor right now, I'm trying to get through school. Well, you better give it away. Because when you get money, when you get money, it will deceive you. Unless that discipline, that practice is going on in your life right now, it will eventually take hold of you. It leads to death, ministry death, life death. In fact, we even see it with this man, the love of money can lead to physical death. See, for so many of you, the love of money is causing you to work so hard that you don't even take care of your physical bodies. And this is what happens to this guy, right? He says, I can retire, eat, drink, and be merry, but he forgot about the clogging in his arteries. That had gone on all throughout those years of making money, and what happens? God says, I'm taking your life. In fact, God almost mockingly, we see in this parable, what he says, Now who will possess all the things you've worked for? There's a great quote. Goes something like this: The executive who works from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. six days a week will be fondly remembered by his wife's second husband. <laughs> How many of you are bearing yourselves an early grave from your love of money and your pursuit of money? Because you work 60, 70 hours a week and you don't care for your physical health, your relational health, your spiritual health. First Timothy 6, 9:10, right? Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It is a snare of sinful and harmful desires that plunge people into all kinds of ruin. The love of money is death. So, here's the question How do we know we have it? So, if those are some of the implicated the consequences, some of the ways, the blindness that we see, the things, the consequences of this disease, how do we know we have it? How do we know we've crossed the line into greediness and covetousness? Well, probably, probably the line is somewhere way, 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 way back there for most of us. Here's the symptom. What's the symptom of this disease to tell us that we have it? You ready for it? The symptom is this. It's worry. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, right? How many of you worry about money? So, what he says here. What does he just say? Do not be anxious. Do not be worried. The symptom in your life that the disease of money has taken hold is that you are worried about money. That you are worried about your possessions. It is the natural drift of our heart, it appears, to worry about money. It is the pattern. Every single one of us struggle with this, unless you're a child. If you're an adult, this is a struggle for you. You know what's so interesting here? is that we see that Jesus, it's not simply the rich he's talking to, but it's also the impoverished. He says, don't simply worry about having bigger barns. What does he say? Even later on, he says, do not worry about your eating and drinking. Do not even worry about the basic necessities of life. Worry. Worry is the great symptom that reveals that you have the disease of money, the love, that you probably have a greedy and covetous hearts. Now, there is something going on underneath our worrying. There's something deeper than simply the worrying. The worrying is the, the, the surface-level symptom it's easy for each of us to see, but here's what's going on even further under the surface underneath our worrying. I think this passage gives us two. And they are this. The first is this. It's under our worrying is a search for significance. That we are so worried about our, our, our finances and our wealth, about having things, about having possessions, is because we have connected our value and our worth to our bank accounts. Verse 15, Jesus says that one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, your life. What is the essence of your life? And then in 23, it says, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. What he's saying is that we are not defined by what we own, but this is how we define ourselves. How do you know if you're winning or losing in this world? What is the way in which we keep score? Whether you have money or whether you don't. We looked, we looked to money to tell us how much we, we are valued and how much we are, look, we are worthy. We looked to our cars and our homes and our clothes. This is our sense of self. This is why it's so devastating. Our sense of significance is found in, in this. Don't you see that this kind of effect on whether you have money or you don't have money? Right? This goes both ways. If you have money, you can say, look at me, I'm a success. I am, I am something of value and worth in this world. But then it goes the other way, right? If I don't have money, I'm despairing. I'm depressed. Because I, I, I have tied my value and my worth as to whether I possess certain things. Kids, even teenagers, right? This is, you begin to experience it. It's so obvious with teenagers, right? This sense of, like, I've got to have that Possession, that iPhone, I have to have it, Mom. I'm 11 years old. Everybody else has the iPhone. I must have it now, yesterday, no, last week. Why? Because if I don't have this, I am what? I am dirt in my class, right? I am less. So it's obvious, parents, right, for our 11 and 12-year-olds. What are you looking to that tells you whether you're dirt or whether you're a success? Is it your money? What are you looking to to tell you that you're a valuable Particularly, I think this is true for you men, right? The the sense, why do you think you get so upset when you get passed over for a raise at work? What are they telling you? You are not valuable. When you don't make that raise. So what are you looking to for value and worth? Second, we see what's under our worrying is not just our search for significance, but also a quest for security. Verse 25, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? And then if you're not able to do something as small as that, why are you anxious about the rest? You see, some people show off their money, and these people are the people we often think are greedy and covetousness, are full of covetousness, and they love money. But you know what? I would say maybe more typical, maybe more typical, particularly in the Christian world where we have learned wise practices of financial management is the love of money can be seen by how much you hoard money in your bank accounts. The people who are always scared about running out of money. You can't stop working. Why? Because you're scared of running out of money. You can't give because you're scared of running out of money. We look at the people with the huge houses and the nice cars and the expensive clothes and the jewelry, say those are people who love money and possessions. But what we fail to see is how much we are hoarding the things to ourselves. Now listen, this is the faithful saver, saver that's being challenged here. Now real quick, the Bible is not against wise financial practices and management. Proverbs 6 actually says that the ant is commended to us for saving. But what we see here in this text, has this farmer saved? He's gone way beyond simple basic savings, hasn't he? This is a man, you see, that it's, it's, it's easy to miss. This is a man whose barns are already full. And so he has to tear them down in order to build bigger barns. He saved and now he needs to save more. We hoard money because we are looking to our money to provide us security that we don't trust God to provide for us. Did you hear that? So many of you are saving, that your Roth IRA is maxed out every single year, that your retirement account is worth millions upon millions upon millions of dollars, and you are lauded in the church as being wise and great. Jesus says, maybe you're a fool because you have looked to those funds as a means of security. The reason we need money is not so much. is so much that we don't want to admit that we're afraid that we're going to be whisked away. Right. Having money, having it stored away is, gives us a sense of control in a world that we can't seem to control. Now we understand this, we talk about this, and we have those little stories, pithy little stories about the people who die and they can't take things to the grave with them. We get it, right? But this is the foolishness of money. We know it. We have the intellectual capacity to know I can't take all this money with me when I die. And yet we do it anyways. That's foolishness, right? That's stupidity to the max. Money is our way of controlling our environments. We use it to perpetuate the illusion we can secure ourselves. Do you worry, let me ask you this, do you worry more, you find yourself worrying and spending more time and thought about your retirement accounts than your spiritual condition? Have you spent more time in the last week checking your bank account, checking your stocks, balancing your budget in your checkbook, and planning your wonderful Excel spreadsheet, looking at all the ways you're going to save for the future instead of actually more than you've actually spent time with the Lord or praying for missionaries? I us say that most likely, if that's the case for you, that you have a heart that loves money. The landholder here has a problem, doesn't he? He says, he says to his soul, You have ample goods. Now relax, eat, and drink. Be merry. This is the deceitfulness of wealth. He says, I'm secure. I've got all. I finally have what I'm looking for. I finally am secure in this world. So I can eat, drink, and be merry. And so what does God do? He reveals the utter foolishness of that and he says your life will be demanded of you today. The trap door underneath the feet that is under all of us was sprung. We're, we know this but we're blinded to it. We know the biggest savings account in the world cannot save us from cancer or the errand car or the drunk driver. We know it and yet we live like we don't. Money can't stop your marriage from breaking apart, your kids from rebelling, your little child from dying. In fact, very often it makes these things very worse. See, whether money is seeking your security from it, whether you're seeking a your sense of security from money, or a sense of significance from money, there's one other level of the heart that we have to go to, and it's this. is that we have an internal God complex. An internal God complex. And there's almost nothing in the world that tries to convince us that we are indeed the God of our own lives than when we have wealth. We have a god complex, and that's what sin is. When you worry about money, you know what you're trying to do. You're trying to be God, and that's why you're worried. You're trying to have God's attributes. You want His divine attributes. This has been the issue ever since the fall of man. We want to be like God. If you're worried about money, if you're going crazy to save, you you think you're God. You know, there's a couple different ways in which two attributes of God that we that particularly, I think, come to forefront here. One is um, God's omnipotence. And we, we, we think we're all powerful in regards to money. Verse 25, listen, look at this. It says, don't you see that all your worry cannot change a thing? You can't add an hour. You can't add a minute. You can't add a second to your life. But we think we're, our money will give us the power to do those things. The illusion is that you can control your life. Money has blinded you to that fact. We also think we're omniscient, right? God is omniscient, You see, right at the heart of worrying is this, that there is a father, it says this in verse 30, that there is a father who knows what you need. And yet we, in our God complex, we think we know better than God what we need, don't we? Our worry is saying, you know what, I'm not sure God actually truly has a good plan for my life. Worrying is looking and saying, you know what, I, I can't trust God to provide for all my needs, I must take these things into my own hands. The God complex. Money plays into that God complex within our hearts. Now, how are we going to be healed from this? How are we going to be, It's a disease that is killing us. It's a disease that kills our relationships, kills our very life, kills our ministries. How are we going to be healed from this? Well, here's the first step. It's simply this. Is I have really good news. I have really good news. You are not gods. That's the good news. So we'll start there. But then we're going to consider three things that Matthew, that Luke 12 gives us. Three things that we're going to consider in moving towards the path of healing. Three things that, that Jesus gives us. First is this. The first two are really quickly because they point to the third and most important one. The path to healing from the disease of the love of money is this. It begins here. Is you consider the raven's. Verse 24 Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. And of how much more value are you than birds? The point of the question is of course, you're more valuable than birds. Now, what does this strike at? It strikes at the heart of our longing for significance. He says, look, look how I care for this, like, a rat with wings. I care for a rat with wings in this way. How much more will I care for you? That you are significant and valued in my eyes. That's the first. So consider the ravens. You see a bird and you look, you say, look at that dumb thing. And yet it's living, and it has the gift of flight, and it's given food. You are so much more valued than that. The second is this, consider the lilies. Verse 27 and verse 28. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O little faith? What's he saying? The flower shows us that we're more, what's going on, we're going to get money to get safety, to feel like we can last. And yet what we see here is that God cares us. He's the one who makes us secure. He's the one who secures our very life. He's the one who feeds us and controls us. You can't add another day to your life. He knows the days of your life. He has planned them out. He knows the hairs on your head. You're secure in his hands. Now both of these things point to the third. Consider this. We need to hear and we need to see our security and significance comes from God. But the way we understand that and experience that is we must consider the third thing, which we must consider God is our Father. Verse 30, it says this. It's talking about all this anxiety and worry. It says the pagans run after all these things. But, but you, you have a Father. Jesus says the reason that you're worried about money is that you're acting and living as if you don't have a good father who can provide for you the significance that you long to feel and experience, who can provide for you the security and the power and the strength that you need for life. Therefore, what Jesus is saying is this, is you're looking to money to give you what your parents give you. You know, this is, you know, the two things, security and significance. You know, the, the, your experience existentially in this life, to the, the degree that you feel that primarily comes from your parents, Right. And what we're saying, what we're saying when we love money, when we pursue money, is that this, we want money to be our parents. Please control my life, that I can't trust God the Father. You need God the Father. You're not an orphan, is what he's saying. You're a child of God, and you need to live like you're a child of God. The whole point of these comparisons to the flowers and the birds is this, is if God would take care of these things, how much more would he take care of you, a child of God? That's the point. The anecdote to worry, the the healing that we need from this disease of of, of loving and longing for money is that you must come to see the blessings that are yours when God is your father. You have to see the inheritance of of the divine father. That's what he says in verse 32. What does he say? Your father has given you, that's past tense, already given you the kingdom of God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and it's yours. It's your inheritance. Your inheritance is secure. You have to see the love of the divine Father. right In verse 32, what else? How else does he describe us? He says this, Oh, you little flock. Speaks in, in, in winsome, shepherding sort of ways. Do you realize how tender that is? The love of the Father that tells you his care for you, his, the significance that you have in his eyes calls you his image bearer now how is that possible how, is it, how do we know that we are valuable in god's sight? how can we remember that? how has god proved that to us the cross right the cross says this that you you are so infinitely valuable that i would send my son to die for you now listen to me calvinists we believe in total depravity, and so very often we talk about our worthlessness. Is what we, when we we talk about total depravity? We we immediately connect that we are worthless. We are we're nothing. We are na- nothing. We're gnats. Now listen, that's how we ought to be viewed, but it's not. This is the beauty of the gospel. That's not actually how we're viewed. There's a difference. There's how you, God ought to view you, but that's not how he actually views you. And it's proven, your worth in his eyes is proven by the fact that Jesus would die for you. There is nothing more valuable in this world. You know, there's a great, another, another great parable, and I'll talk about this again next week. There's a great parable where Jesus talks about the man who finds a treasure in the fields. And he goes and sells all that he has. And then usually the moral of the story is this. So everything you have, Christian, in order to get that treasure... And that, that is the moral of the story. That's how you ought to live. But you will not sell everything you have until you realize that actually the point of the parable is this, is that you are the treasure, and that God is the one who's pursued you. And he has sold everything to get you. This is the value you have in God's eyes. That means you're significant. You don't have to run to money to tell you that you're, that you're valuable and worthwhile in this world. And, can, and if God would go to such lengths... To make you his. Do you think anybody could, ta- could take you from his hands? No one could snatch you from God's hands. No one could take you from him. The security that we long for, the sense of safety, the significance that we so desperately need to feel and experience is only experienced, and only rightly understood through the gospel of Jesus Christ as we focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. Your wealth cannot give that to you. One final thought this morning as we close. And that's this. In my initial reading on Monday, walking through this text, one of the things that, that steps out, pops out is this. Is, is there something interesting? The foolish man here in the parable, he speaks to himself. Actually, he doesn't just speak to himself. He speaks to his soul. And that's an odd expression. And I couldn't glean much from this other than this, is that the, de- the, the deceptiveness of this life, of the love of money, is such, just goes to such a depth to us, goes down to our very souls. And so what we need, brothers and sisters, is we need a message that can heal our very souls. You would actually say something different to your soul. Instead of saying, soul, ah, you have all that you need in this money and this wealth. Instead, you would say, soul, little soul, you are treasured, you are loved, and you are possessed by God. Could you say that? Could you speak to your soul? This is called preaching the gospel to yourself. And the degree that you do that, you will be set free. It is the great anecdote to worry, and it's the great antidote to the disease of money. Let's pray.